You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPI podcast with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, we are delighted to be joined once again by Becca Wasser from the Centre for New American Security. Becca joins Justin Bassey for a conversation on AUKUS, integrated deterrence and US foreign policy. Becca details some of the strategic challenges Australia and the United States face in the Indo-Pacific and how AUKUS can contribute to security and stability in the region. Becca Wasser, welcome back to the Australian Strategic Policy Institute podcast. You are absolutely a fan favourite and now you are a regular. Uh, Fabulous to have you here. Good. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm glad to be joining again. Wonderful. Uh, It has actually been great to catch up uh, in Washington, D.C. this week during the ASPE CNAS King's College Centre for Grand Strategy AUKUS Dialogue. It's clear that there's still a lot of work to do, uh, but it is equally clear that AUKUS is critical to ensuring stability in the Indo-Pacific over the long term. The region needs AUKUS and AUKUS partners to succeed. Last year, when you were on the podcast, you took us through a future scenario involving cross-strait conflict. It was, of course, very interesting then, and tensions have only increased since, with multiple record flyovers from the PLA Air Force, with Beijing sending around 1,700 planes into Taiwan's air defence identification zone in 2022 alone, and for the first time also sending drones. Subsequent to your war game, there have been more discussions around the region, including on how a potential conflict could play out. But often these discussions, Becca, at least in Australia, can get bogged down in arguments over timing instead of substance. And it becomes an argument between the alarmist versus the ignorant. You are firmly centred on the pragmatic and the realistic. Your scenario was not simply about what war would or could look like, but it is also about what is necessary to deter war, to avoid war. Can you take us through deterrence and why it is so important for everyone? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And I think deterrence is one of those things that isn't always as well understood in part because it's so difficult to measure. It's Mm. really based on a bunch of tangible changes resulting in an intangible change in a different state's behavior. So not a political scientist here. I just play one on TV. I say that I went to the school of hard knocks instead of an actual uh, PhD. But let me sort of go through what deterrence is and why it's so important. Right. So in the most basic of ways, deterrence really aims to discourage a state from taking an action that is viewed as undesirable by the United States, by Australia, by a number of different countries. Um, and sometimes this could be an undesirable action like a military attack. But the idea here is to stop it before it has even started. And oftentimes you do so either by threatening to prevent a state from realizing its objective or by trying to make the cost of a potential attack so great that the state determines that, you know, it's just not worth it, that the juice is not worth the squeeze. And so we often talk about two different types of deterrence, right? Deterrence by punishment, which is, you know, you're trying to threaten severe penalties, whether this is economic sanctions, uh, punitive military strikes, 
Or, you know, we often talk also about deterrence by denial. And I think this is the one um, that I tend to ascribe to the most. Uh, But really what you're trying to do is to possess and demonstrate the ability to defeat an attack when and where it would occur, right? And oftentimes, because we have this network of alliances and partnerships, we're really trying to deter an attack that's far away from our own borders and our own shores. So really what you need is to have, uh, you know, a strong posture and combat credible forces. In this case, if we're looking at this Taiwan scenario in the Indo-Pacific, which is a long way away from the United States uh, when I'm looking at my own government. But really, we need to just enhance deterrence by taking steps to strengthen posture, to strengthen our combat credibility. But that needs to happen in peacetime, right? Because again, we're trying to prevent something that hasn't yet started. It's too late to deter when there's already a crisis or conflict at hand. If the balloon has already gone up, we're too late. So it requires taking steps in peacetime, which is why sometimes I think deterrence is so poorly understood, because folks who don't know any better say, well, you're building up, you know, you're trying to create an arms race, you're building up all of these bases, you're the one who's being, you know, more militarizing of the region than perhaps the adversary that you're trying to deter. And that's truly not the case here. It's really taking steps to ensure that we don't find ourselves in conflict that would come at a much greater cost, whether that is blood and treasure, um, and frankly, have huge impact on the region, the Indo-Pacific, as well as the greater world when you look at how much of our economic flows go through the Indo-Pacific in general. So I've got an upcoming report on this because I am a think tanker, which means I am constantly flogging reports and writing reports. So I have an upcoming report that's looking at how the United States, along with its allies and partners, including its most capable allies like Australia, can enhance simultaneous deterrence in the Indo-Pacific and in Europe in the near term. So stay tuned for a little bit more on that. Maybe that'll be my third uh, time on the podcast right. after it comes out. We'll uh, we'll book you in already. That was an amazing definition of deterrence. Uh, I encourage everybody uh, to replay it a number of times. Really importantly, you just explained why investment in defence during peacetime is so important. The answer in peacetime is not we have peace, therefore we don't have to deal with defence. The only way to maintain peace and to maintain stability is to continue that investment. And we've seen uh, in Europe how a reduction in an investment in defence can reduce deterrence. And as you say, we, we sometimes only know that uh, deterrence has failed when uh, conflict begins. So this can be about proof of something working by what is not happening. And so uh, the, your line of Uh, We need to stop it before it has started. Very, very crucial, excellent definition for everybody to to understand uh, when looking at what deterrence is. Becky, you talked uh, a lot there also about uh, allies uh, and partners in the context of deterrence. It's exactly what we've been focusing on this week in relation to AUKUS and uh, why uh, AUKUS is important. Something that you have argued previously, if I can just quote you uh, back at you, uh, you said uh, the US, quote, may not have sufficient capacity, capability, nor readiness to contend with multiple advanced threats and crises. 
highlighting that the Pentagon needs allies and partners to help it deter Chinese and Russian aggression and manage the lesser but persistent threats that could grow if ignored. This is something you wrote about in your recent report, No Eye in Team. Fabulous report. Can you talk our listeners through this, through the key findings of your report, and in particular, why in 2023 and beyond partnerships are so important, including for such a major power as the US? Yeah, well, thanks for the kind words about the report. It was a labor of love that uh, Stacey Pettyjohn and I did together. Uh, really wanted to sort of tackle the Pentagon's idea of integrated deterrence, but really what it means for allies and partners who I think had the most questions about it. But also, you know, we've got a fun little case study looking at AUKUS uh, in that one. But let me tackle your question from a U.S. perspective and explain the argument around what you quoted. So I think it's really important to put this all in a broader perspective, right? Right now, the United States faces a threat landscape that is not like anything else it's ever experienced in its history, not even during the Cold War. There are two nuclear armed powers in the form of China and Russia that the United States is trying to contend with. You know, you and I could talk all day about China as a rising military threat, particularly over the long term. And Russia, while we've seen, you know, what's happened based on Russia's disastrous invasion of Ukraine uh, and how that has reduced its military power, it still can be quite dangerous and will be quite dangerous, at least for the foreseeable future. You know, there's a lot of literature about how declining powers are the most dangerous powers. And I think we need to have that in the back of our heads. And at the same time, let's also not forget Iran, North Korea, uh, violent extremist organizations, you know, the list goes on and on. The era of the United States as the world's policeman, it's over. The U.S. can't do it, and it most certainly can't do it alone because we're at this unique juncture in time. In order to free up resources for force modernization, the U.S. military is smaller than it's ever been. It has divested of you know, what is referred to as legacy capabilities, but it means that it's lacking certain capabilities as it's waiting for modernization efforts to bear fruit over time. And then there's also been a broader readiness challenge that we just haven't been able to find a way to get out of. And so when you look at that, the U.S. is in a precarious position. And so it needs allies and partners at the very least, and this sounds more crude than I mean it, but as force multipliers. And ultimately, a lot of what the United States cares about, it's a collective security, right? Europe is a collective security and we have a collective security mechanism for it. In the Indo-Pacific, we might not have that formal mechanism a la NATO, but we do have a collective duty to ensure the free flow of trade, to ensure you know that these clear seen lines of control remain open. These are the things that we all care about. So when you have that, you have the U.S. and its most capable allies and partners needing to deter potential aggression by China and by Russia. And so we've seen the U.S. government really highlighting the importance of allies and partners doing this. We've seen this at the U.S. Department of Defense. The National Defense Strategy said that, you know, allies and partners were the center of gravity for the whole strategy. But 
there's still so much more that needs to be done. And this is what we've talked about for the better part of two or three days, right? There's still so much that needs to be done in order for the United States to facilitate working with allies and partners in the way envisioned by the department. You know, I think Ukraine has showed us, at least in Europe, that there's still a lot of shortfalls in collective capability and capacity, right? Um, I think that should be a wake-up call for all of us. And it is, but it means that we need to take a step further in trying to reduce some of the barriers to defense cooperation. Um, And these are pretty sizable, and they are things like basic information sharing, as well as, you know, we talked a lot about export controls, including ITAR when we were at our, you know, AUKUS dialogue. Um, but we haven't been able to overcome these barriers, and we desperately need to. Um, we need to start breaking these down. And we've demonstrated that we have the ability to break them down, but only during crisis and only during other conflicts. We need to start breaking them down now in peacetime for the reason that you and I just talked about with deterrence. It's enhancing our preparedness to deal with some of the worst challenges that we might face. So we need to start breaking some of these barriers down to strengthen defense cooperation, to move towards integration, to try and actually have collective deterrence and security. And that's why this is so important at this clear juncture in time. Uh, again, really, really well said. And, and uh, as you said, we uh, can talk all day and, and have this week talked all day about uh, the threats coming out of Beijing and Moscow and North Korea and Iran and violent extremists. It really is quite relaxing and calming conversations with you, Becca Wasser. I feel very zen. <laughs> uh, so, look, I think what you've just explained is why there is uh, a, uh, a general consensus with the people that we have been uh, engaged with this week on the strategic rationale for AUKUS. Can you take us through, though, as a uh, as the think tanker that you are, uh, and the ability to spot holes in things and spot challenges and risks? Can you take us through what you see as a key risk that that we all face uh, with uh, trying to implement AUKUS? Oh gosh, I could go on for a while. You know, uh, I'm a little bit of a secret pessimist. Uh, I only wear the color black for a reason. So uh, this is this is hard for me to only choose one. I think probably the biggest risk to August moving forward, I would I would sort of couch it under the bucket of domestic political risk. I think you know that's very true in your own capital. You have uh, you know there's been some pretty interesting comments by former Australian officials that have come out. Um, so there's some risks there. Uh, there's obviously uh, broader risks for all of us, right, to try and demonstrate the broader strategic value of this while also demonstrating some of the value to the basic social services and contracts that all governments have with their citizens, right? When we need to start demonstrating the way in which it links to the economy and to job creation, um, that's going to be incredibly important for all of us. Um, but I think the biggest domestic political risk that we all have is just the long timelines for August, right? We only really have timelines for pillar one, right? The submarines. And that's a very, very long timeline. But when we're talking about pillar two, we're really talking about advanced technologies, including some advanced technologies that have not yet been sort of designed and fielded, right? So the timelines for those are also long. So finding ways 
to get through all of our own political systems. We've got elections coming up in D.C. If you wanted to look at the timeline for how many elections there will be overall by the time uh, Pillar 1 comes to fruition, I can't do math, so I'm not even going to try, but it's a few. We all have to find a way to sustain positive momentum while dealing with the domestic political challenges, as well as just some of the basic, uh, you know, changes in our political systems that we all have as democratic nations, right? This is this is the beauty and a curse yeah, of no, democracy. <laughs> completely agree. Uh, beauty and curse, beauty and burden, and it is what authoritarian regimes, they, they think they have an advantage over democracies. They think that mm-hmm. they have stamina uh, and we might be able to hold out for six months, a year, two years, but uh, they can last a lot longer. Uh, so uh, I agree with you that uh, while capability is key uh, and technology is key to the strategic competition that we that we have, uh, will uh, and the intent uh, to succeed here is uh, is just as important. Capability and will are two sides of the same coin. I also agree with your um, key risk of domestic political concerns over a long period of time. On that, can 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 we talk a little bit about what I've been seeing this week in, in the US? Uh, both in uh, my face-to-face discussions and uh, in a lot of discussions that we can see online, there seem to be some differences of views, um, as there always are, between those who might regard themselves as internationalists uh, and those who might be more uh, credited with with being isolationists, Mm. and there is a full spectrum in between. But some seem to be saying that the US needs to concentrate on domestic needs because of uh, uh, issues here, uh, while others say that we need to reduce resourcing in relation to the support for Ukraine because Beijing is the bigger threat long-term. From my perspective, uh, while I agree that Beijing is the primary and longer-term challenge for the US and partners such as Australia, we need to continue supporting Ukraine or else we will be reducing deterrence, Mm -hmm. uh, as we've been talking about, because we would be revealing to Beijing that democracies can simply be outlasted. Can you take us through the different worldviews that seem to be here through the US foreign policy scene, Becca, and your views on what we might see over a longer period of time? Yeah, I think you've hit on probably two of the most uh, visible trends which we've seen, which is kind of a lot more of what you're currently hearing from the Biden administration, this idea of needing to work with allies and partners and creating these different webs of allies and partners, right? Mini lateralism, I think I would say probably should have been the word of 2022. I think maybe integrated ended up being the word of 2022 and now is continuing into 2023. Um, But, you know, we've seen this push towards having these mini lateral groupings and just getting more and more countries involved in a variety of different issues and in some ways creating sort of different sets of stakeholders. Um, And we see this a bit with AUKUS as well. But then on the other hand, you have this growing isolationist strain that's been moving through U.S. domestic politics and also foreign policy uh, circles and beyond. I think, you know, it is worth noting that a lot of the arguments that are being made are ideologically based rather than based in no kidding 
uh, fact as well as analysis on sort of what's needed. And, you know, I agree that China is the primary long-term challenge. And I think that it is so important that we in the United States and for those of us who work in defense circles continue to support the U.S. national defense strategy's uh, prioritization of threats, which is China is the greatest long-term challenge and should be the priority threat, and we should be resourcing towards solutions that deal with the priority threat. That does not need to happen at the expense of Europe. And there's a lot of different ways in which you can square that circle, but sometimes I think the arguments that are the clearest are the ones that are the most simple. And to say China first and China only is a lot easier for a broader set of folks to understand and therefore it resonates and it also resonates you know as we're staring down a looming financial crisis and folks are dealing with increased uh, political polarization at home right this is very much what we're seeing in my country so i think all of that is just worth being put together and us just sort of considering and maybe it's a need for those of us who don't necessarily believe that it should be, frankly, the U.S. first and only, uh, to maybe start finding different ways of couching our arguments, our highly nuanced arguments as to why prioritization of the China threat and still making moves to deter China also requires us to be shoring up deterrence in Europe and ensuring that Russia cannot aggress on NATO allies, uh, which, you know, still it remains a potential threat. Uh, We need to do a better job of trying to say those arguments simply, plainly, and in a way that is more broadly understood. Yeah, completely agree. And sometimes uh, a simple message seems uh, uh, out of... uh uh, the realms of the possible uh, when it is exactly what is necessary to explain uh, what is happening and why uh, certain policy decisions need to be made. Uh, I also think because there's a, a real need apart from, I completely agree with you that uh, even uh, those who espouse America first can't, shouldn't mean America um, alone or US alone. I do think there is a role and responsibility for other countries to ensure they're not only acting after the US because it sort of fits that narrative of oh, the US is uh, the, the the major power here and everybody else is just falling into line. So uh, you know, the, the recent visits by the Australian Prime Minister and the Japanese Prime Minister to India, uh, very strong. Uh, we need to ensure that, that Europe is similarly uh, showing through its act uh, and uh, what it, it says uh, that uh, it's in their own interests uh, that certain uh, militias activities are, are counted. It's not always just what the US uh, is, is doing. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. The, the, it, it, the other thing I've been seeing here in the US of it is what looks like, at least to me, some criticism from the New York press or the New York crowd, Wall Street crowd, claiming that Washington, D.C. has groupthink on Beijing. It, it does actually seem a bit odd to me because it, if, it were, if it were just the same types of people saying exactly the same thing, well, that would resonate as, as groupthink. But it's the diversity of people who have come to the same conclusion uh, that's so significant here from different angles, uh, different political parties, uh, people who disagree on a whole range of other issues, whether it be Russia or human rights or climate change. There is consensus 
in relation to Beijing's uh, malign activity. So it's it's compelling that we have all these disagreements, but consensus on Beijing. So I would argue that it's not driven by groupthink, but driven by Beijing's actions. Do you have a view on on this debate that seems to be going on at the moment? I mean, I could not agree with you more. I think you look at the China Select Committee that uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher chairs and has you know been the champion of since the start and he's a republican but if you look at the makeup of that committee both on the republican and the democratic side oh my goodness there are so many people who just like they could not be more polar opposite um but they're they've all come together to sit on this committee because they agree on the potential severity of the China challenge. And I think here they all focus on different elements of it. And it's to your point, it's the diversity of folks who have just coalesced around this. You know, I think the Wall Street crowd, it comes down to economics, right? Economics is politics. Uh, and that's really where that one comes down on. But I think often in a lot of the conversations that I have with folks, often around wargaming and wargaming the defense of Taiwan. And folks are saying, well, why are you doing this? You know, you're militarizing the problem and you're a warmonger, which I try really hard not to be and I'm not at heart. But, you know, I explain how wargaming strengthens deterrence, not always well understood. But oftentimes it puts the onus of, well, Washington's preparing for war with China, which is going to cause war with China. And you have to kind of take a step back and say, okay, have you looked at Chinese actions in the East China Sea, the South China Sea, what they've done in terms of building islands, aggressing on uh, other territory? Have you paid attention to the human rights abuses that China has committed, particularly against the Uyghur population? You know, for folks who are saying that Washington is the warmonger, they tend to forget that it takes two to tango. Yeah. And that China is not this bright, sunny place that reminds everyone of Florida. Um, instead, there's some serious problems that they have going on. And there's been some really egregious actions that have increasingly made a broader range of people aware of the fact that China is really trying to erode the international order as we know it and not thinking through the potential disastrous consequences that that will have on, frankly, the way in which we've all been living our lives. Spot on. And I think part of the uh, message here is that the US, Australia, others have tried a policy uh, with Beijing of engagement by itself. Uh, It would be nice if it worked, uh, but uh, it doesn't. We need engagement with due diligence. And that due diligence means that from time to time, what guarantees you or what strengthens security and sovereignty does need to outweigh what what might get you a buck. Uh, So uh, that that really does need to be a message that uh, we hone in on, uh, that uh, economics alone uh, Mm -hmm. can't be the way, engagement alone can't be the way. It doesn't mean you go the other way and say we're going to refuse to engage at all, but you need to uh, know what the consequences are going to be. Absolutely, and I think... It's so important that we keep lines of communication open. I think for at least me looking at things with the most recent events that occurred with the balloon crisis, the fact that China did not pick up the phone when the U.S. called, the fact that we don't have mechanisms for even crisis communications, I think that that's 
quite dangerous and is something that in the near term, we need to start working on building, whether it is direct lines of communication or whether that is through a third party, but also just ensuring outside of crises that we have these lines of communication open. It's so critical and it's so important. And I think you're so right when you say not engaging without being clear-eyed doesn't mean that you pull back and there's no engagement whatsoever. There's no communication whatsoever. That's how we find ourselves in dangerous territory. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Communication is critical, as you say. It helps us live with tension rather than ignoring tension. Yeah. Uh, uh, There's been some heavy topics uh, uh, there, Becca. (laughs) I'm keen to try and finish off with something more uh, lighthearted. Last uh, time around, we talked about your Spurs uh, 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 support, and we won't go... uh, down the, uh, the the football soccer path at this time uh, round, but uh, how about a couple of quick fire questions? Uh, what are you reading right now? Murder. You wanted something bright and uplifting. <laughs> I'm reading about murder. I love murder mysteries. I hate reading for work when I'm not during work hours. So I have a bunch of different murder mystery series that I read. Uh, one of my favorites is the Maeve Kerrigan uh, series by Jane Casey. Huge fan. Just released book 10. So that's what I've been trying to pour through. Fantastic. Well, uh, yeah, hopefully it's uh, an escape from the real world, but uh, unfortunately might be a peek into the real world <laughs> in, uh, in many respects. Uh, all right. Well, that's a good tip for the reading. What about uh, uh, watching? What are you watching? Oh, I have just finished The Last of Us. Uh, Again, no spoilers, but yeah, that was fantastic. If you haven't watched, you absolutely should. It is so worth it. Just really great storytelling, really creative in, you know, sort of the setup because it is this different world that we live in that looks like our world, but a bit different because zombies. Wow, it's so uh, from uh, looking at the uh, the China challenge and uh, the threats from uh, North Korea, Iran, and Moscow to uh, reading about murder and uh, and zombies. It's uh, as well as wearing black only. Are, are we sensing a theme here? <laughs> Very good. Well, it's uh, it, I I can also say that I'm uh, I'm enjoying the series and a big fan of uh, Pedro uh, Pascal from uh, Game of Thrones as well. Uh, but uh, I was uh, I I didn't think I would be uh, able to enjoy uh, another uh, zombie. Uh, uh, um, type uh, uh, TV uh, series up because I was such a big fan of uh, Walking Dead. So I encourage uh, uh, everyone to also uh, watch The Walking Dead. But uh, it is, I think, a very good uh, viewing tip, the, the Last of Us. Becca Wasser, uh, as always, an absolute pleasure. Uh, I look forward to continuing our discussions on, on all those uh, very fun and uplifting topics. Uh, and I do look forward to uh, your, uh, your your next report, your next uh, uh, war game, future scenario, and the next time you're on the Aspie podcast. Yeah, thanks again for having me. It'll be fun to do this, hopefully next time in Australia. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.